Take out your sermon outline if you grabbed one on the way in, or you can open up your Three Crosses app, and there we'll find, you'll find an outline there. And let's take our Bibles and go to the book of Ecclesiastes. It's right after the book of Proverbs. If you're using the Book Rack Bible, you'll find it on page 1034, 1034, and you can join us in the book of Ecclesiastes. The Bible Project that do, does those videos is a great resource. You can go online and you can look at virtually all of the Bible in that kind of way, kind of a 30,000-foot view, and I want to encourage you to do that. It's a fantastic resource for believers in Christ to get a better understanding of what the Bible is teaching, what the Bible says, and I want to encourage you with that. I kind of chuckled all the way through thinking, you know, the critic who is so wise, he should know that smoking is not good for his health. <laughs> I mean, come on. Well, but I guess you need the metaphor of smoke, right? Because that's Hevel, this difficult, you know, vaporous way of the way life looks at times. And if you notice, the stage has changed today. Uh, the, the background here is no longer just looking down from above. You know, in the book of Proverbs, everything was easily understood because we have a, a very vertical view. We have a cause and effect. If we do what God wants us to do, life is just going to quantitatively and qualitatively be better for us. That's what the book tells us in the book of Proverbs. But we come to the book of Ecclesiastes, and we've got a whole different thing going on. Wisdom is going to speak to us through the chaos of life through what is unpredictable about life. And it's not this simple cause and effect. Both the good and the bad, the march of time, we all die. All these things are realities, and wisdom is still going to speak through that. And that's why we need a full picture of wisdom, not just the wisdom of Proverbs, but the wisdom found in this amazing book of Ecclesiastes. And I love how this book, uh, better than any other book in the Bible, gives to us uh, the question that is the most fundamental question, the most pressing question of life, and that is, what is life's meaning? Why are we here? What is the purpose of life? That is the question that the book of Ecclesiastes puts forward for us to look at. And this morning in the message, we're going to examine this question, what it means, embedded in the first three verses of the book, and then we're going to look just beyond that a little bit this morning. We're going to see a few things that throw a lot of people off track in their search for meaning, and then we're going to see it all come together as we go to the end of the book and see just what the book points to as a clear answer uh, for where meaning is truly found. So to do that, let's begin by reading chapter 1, verses 1 through 3, and then I'm just going to take you on a little journey through chapter 2. We're going to skip around a little bit. Chapter 1, verse 1, the words of the teacher, son of David, king in Jerusalem, meaningless, meaningless, says the teacher, utterly meaningless, everything is meaningless. <laughs> what does man gain from all his labor at which he toils under the sun? Look over to verse 12. I, the teacher, was king over Israel in Jerusalem. I devoted myself to study and to explore by wisdom all that is done under heaven. What a heavy burden God has laid on men. I have seen all the things that are done under the sun. All of them are meaningless, a chasing after the wind. What is twisted cannot be straightened. What is lacking cannot be counted. I thought to myself, look, I have grown and increased in wisdom more than anyone who has ruled over Jerusalem before me. I have experienced much of wisdom and knowledge. Then I applied myself to the understanding of wisdom and also of madness and folly. But I learned that this too is a chasing after the wind. 
For with much sorrow comes much, with much wisdom comes much sorrow. The more knowledge, the more grief. I thought in my heart, come now. I will test you with pleasure to find out what is good. But that also proved to me meaningless. Laughter, I said, is foolish. And what does pleasure accomplish? I tried cheering myself with wine and embracing folly, my mind still guiding me with wisdom. I wanted to see what was worthwhile for men to do under heaven during the few days of their lives. I undertook great projects. I built houses for myself and planted vineyards. I made gardens and parks and planted all kinds of fruit trees on them, in them. I made reservoirs to water groves of flourishing trees. I, brought, I bought male and female slaves and had other slaves who were born in my house. I also owned more herds and flocks than anyone in Jerusalem before me. I amassed silver and gold for myself and the treasure of kings and provinces. I acquired men and women singers and a harem as well, the delights of the heart of man. I became greater by far than anyone in Jerusalem before me. In all this, my wisdom stayed with me. I denied myself nothing my, my eyes desired. I refused my heart no pleasure. My heart took delight in all my work, and this was the reward for all my labor. Yet when I surveyed all that my hands had done and what I had toiled to achieve, everything was meaningless, a chasing after the wind. Nothing was gained under the sun. Verse 17, so I hated life because the work that is done under the sun was grievous to me. All of it is meaningless, a chasing after the wind. I hated all the things I had toiled for under the sun because I must leave them to the one who comes after me. And who knows whether he will be wise or a fool. Yet he will have control over all the work into which I have poured my effort and skill under the sun. This too is what? Meaningless. All right. Aren't you glad you came to church today? <laughs> this is an amazing book. You know, I love this book. The more I've read Ecclesiastes, I've taught expositionally through this book, and as I just wanted to take a few weeks, we're going to kind of go over the top, some bird's eye view of some things. There's some powerful truth here that we're going to look at. The three things I want to point out to you today that I hope will just grab your heart and attention are these. Number one, if you're taking notes, this book, starting in verses one through three of chapter one, tells us that the meaning of life is not easily understood. Let's say that together. The meaning of life is not easily understood. That's what the book of Ecclesiastes is saying. And here, written by King Solomon, we believe, Israel's third reigning king, son of David. But most scholars point out rightfully that there's this other voice that begins to share the truth, the hard truth of this book. And this, this word teacher is used both in the first person and the third person. Sometimes it's the author. Sometimes it's this critic, this wise critic, most of the time it's the wise critic, that is sort of pointing out the hard truth about life. And remember that the focus of this book is life under the sun. This is a perspective not from heaven down, but from earth up. It's in the tempest, in the crashing of the waves, in the storms of our lives. This is the way life looks to us. This is the result of the way life is when it's under the sun. That's what Ecclesiastes is showing us. And this little word that is used some 40 times in the book that the NIV translates meaningless is that word hevel. Let's say the word hevel. And that word, like we saw on the video, describes smoke or vapor. 
when we read the word meaningless, and some of our translations use the word vanity or worthlessness, but those are not really good words. Even meaninglessness is not really the right word because this book is not saying that life isn't meaningful ever. It's just saying that the true meaning of life is not easily understood, especially when you're in the crashing of the waves, especially when you're in the downside looking up. Life just doesn't always look like it makes much sense. Now, we would rather live in the Proverbs, right, where everything makes sense, where if you do this, these things happen. The principles apply. But the Bible is so beautiful because it wants to show us another way that wisdom comes, and that is when we see a bigger picture that includes the chaos of our lives too. Now, this leads to the critic's argument right here in verse 3 if you're looking at it. The main idea is stated in verse 2. Four times he says, meaningless, meaningless. And then in verse 3, here comes the argument of the book. What does a man gain from all his labor at which he toils under the sun? Uh, Every great philosopher has tried to answer the question of what is the meaning of life. It's called in philosophy the summum bonum. What is the highest good? What is the ultimate achievement? What is the greatest and whether you look at the ancient classic philosophers all the way back to you know, Socrates, Plato, you could look at, uh, you know, into the more modern days of, of Kierkegaard or, or uh, Sartre, existential philosophers have tried to answer the question, what is the meaning of life? And here in this ancient book of Scripture, we find the first existential philosopher, King Solomon. And he's asking this question of what really is the meaning of life. It's a huge, loud question that stirs, convicts, and challenges the reader. And that's why some people believe that this is the most important book of the Bible. Why? Because it asks the question that the rest of the Bible answers. If you don't get the right question, the answers don't make sense. For example, if you're If your question, if the big burning question of your life is how to have a good life and you read the Bible, you're not going to find it. Or if your burning question is how do I be, how am I, how can I be a religious person, you read the Bible and you're not really going to find it. If you want to read the Bible for the answer to uh, the question of how do I stay out of trouble or how do I become wealthy or how do I become prosperous in my life or whatever question that seems to be burning in your heart you're really not going to find it. And that's why to most people the Bible is boring because they're trying to answer the wrong question. The right question is, what is the meaning of life? And that's what this book is doing. It's only asking, what is life's meaning? And if you don't get that question right, the rest of the Bible is not going to make sense to you. But when you know that this book is answering the question of what is the meaning of life, then you know, you come to the Bible recognizing that the meaning of life is found in knowing God through a personal relationship with His Son, Jesus Christ, in a way that even lost sinners like you and me, who are undeserving of grace, undeserving of God's goodness, undeserving of a meaningful life, we can come to this God who has created all things, the good and allowing the bad for His purposes so that we can know Him, we can be related to Him by faith, and that we can live and find true meaning and true purpose in the lives that we live right here on earth and throughout eternity.
And that's when the Bible becomes exciting. That's when I'm reading my Bible, even when I'm in the, the, the depths of despair or the frustrations of life or terrible disappointments or chaotic moments, and I can say, God, you are sovereign. You are a God that loves me. You are a God that cares for me. You are a God that's attentive to the things in my life, and you're going to use all these things, good things, bad things in my life, to bring about your purposes in my life, and I'm reading with attention. That's why this book is so important. But this book is telling us that the meaning of life is not easy to understand. But the second thing that we see, even from what we read this morning, is that the meaning of life is often easily misunderstood. Now, I'm not playing tricks with you. I'm not trying to just restate what I just said. These are two totally different things. The fact that life is not easily understood means one thing. The fact that life is often misunderstood means something completely different. What I'm saying to you is that this book presents very clearly that there are a lot of people that attach themselves to what I'm calling counterfeits of meaning. Things that you're going to go after in your life thinking that, ah, this is the real meaning of life. This is where my life really ought to be about. And you're going to attach yourself to those things, and as I share them, they're just going to go really quickly, rapid fire. They're, they're kind of a duh. But they're things that we all fall into, and even believers in Christ, even those who found redemption in Christ, oftentimes feel the hooks of these things pulling in our lives. The meaning of life is often misunderstood. Can I show you them right here in the text? There are five of them, and the fifth one really is a big category, which breaks into two other prongs. But let me just look at the first one here. In verses 12 through 18 of chapter 1, some people believe that the true meaning of life is found in pure intellectualism. Got to be smart. Got to get the grades. Got to know stuff. Got to drill down into the mysteries of life. Now, throughout these little, you know, things that are what I'm calling the counterfeit chaos of meaning, uh, the little trigger word is going to be, these things are okay, but they're just not enough. Okay, and I'm going to have you help me with this and remember this by going through this little mantra. When I come to a point where I kind of look at you like, you're going to say, not enough, Okay. Okay, so let's think about what, what Solomon or the teacher, the critic, says. He says in verse 13, I devoted myself to study and to explore by wisdom all that is done under heaven. You know, there are a lot of people that set out to figure out everything about life, from science to history to anthropology to whatever. You can go into any study, the disciplines of science, the discipline of intellectualism, you can go mathematics, you can go all over the board, and there are people that drill into the depths of all that and what Solomon or the critic is saying is, is that it's, he's not saying that knowledge doesn't have uh, any value. He's just simply saying that knowledge by itself is not enough. And yet you can pour yourself into that all your life. You can give yourself to becoming wise. Now remember in the book of Ecclesiastes, looking from the ground up, wisdom is seen a little different than in other places in Scripture. Here, wisdom is a picture of the human attainment, the ability of human, you know, intellectual acumen, academic acumen, being able to think things through, figure things out, solve the problems. And a lot of people feel like that's really the key. There are people today that believe that the key to the, a better world, a, a world freed from its 
problems of war and disease is simply knowledge. And so we're going to pour education everywhere we go. And again, education is great. I'm all for education. We should pour ourselves into it. We should give ourselves to it. But education is not enough. That's what he's saying. And had I known this before I started my graduate studies, (laughs) I might have changed my mind. Because knowledge is great, but it's just not enough. And that's what this section is saying to us. This is what the, the critic is saying. You can pour yourself into it, but look at verse 18. With much wisdom comes much <laughs> sorrow. The more knowledge, the more grief. It's like the deeper you go into whatever discipline you're studying, <laughs> the more you're frustrated with the cavernous amount that you don't know about it. It's like the deeper you go, the further you are away from understanding it all. And that's really what higher education does. It introduces you to the fact, you know, when you're in junior high school, you think you've learned everything you can about, you know, math or science. And then the deeper you go, there's always another layer. There's always another, you know, cavernous giant hole that needs to be filled with somebody who more brilliant than you has figured out what to say or do about it. And that's the amazing thing about knowledge. You never get to the bottom of it. And by the way, how much of your brain do you actually use? <laughs> it's not a trick question. I don't know. I heard someone say that we, we use like 10% of our brain. Now, I think I use a lot more than that. But whatever, whatever you use, you're never going to actually apprehend the total faculty of your brain ability. But even if you could, with all the knowledge you could attain, and I've met some really brilliant people. I met, there's people in our church that are so, they're wicked smart. They know everything about everything. They're like walking encyclopedias when I talk to them. Or in a specific discipline, they just know, they know, they know, they know. And yet, even those folks realize that there's just another level. There's another level beyond them. All right, I think you get the picture. Knowledge is great, but it's what? It's not enough. So then, some people believe that the true meaning of life is found in pleasure. Oh, now something we can talk about. I mean, for all the intellectuals in the world, there's many who just want to have a good time. I mean, looking back, that was me in high school, by the way. (laughs) I was not an academic in high school at all. I became a better student when I got into college and kind of knew what I wanted to do with my life. But in high school, it was just about cramming for tests and blah, blah, blah. I like to have fun. I like to go out with my friends and have fun. And pleasure is a lot of things. It's fun. It's very accessible. It's convenient. It's inviting. But the one thing it isn't is entirely meaningful in an ultimate way. Pleasure says, hey, the grass is greener on the other side of the fence. Solomon had access to pleasures known to humanity. Look at it there in verses 8 through 10 of chapter 2. Wine, women, song, garden, pools, servants, livestock. He had an amusement park, a variety of pleasures, 24-7. But with all amusement parks, the fascination and satisfaction eventually wears off. How many like Disneyland? Raise your hand. Okay. Well, you know what? I like it too, but I liked it a lot more the first time I went. Now when I go, I have to bring a wad of cash and know I'm going to be broke (laughs) just after I walk through the front gate, you know. I mean, there's just something about an amusement park that kind of wears you out. At first, it's great, but then it kind of goes thin on you. It's the same thing with gifts. You know that gadget that you have to have? You can't wait to get it. And after you get it, 
it's just a matter of time before you need to have the updated gadget, right? The newer version. If we all pull out the phones we got in our pocket, we've got, most of us have got the newest or newer versions. Why? I'm not carrying around my little, you know, Nokia flip phone anymore. <laughs> not that that's bad. In fact, I kind of like to go back. But the point is, we, we're wear out. You know, our kids, we give our kids gifts, and they just couldn't wait to have whatever it was. And, you know, after a, after a few hours, it's in the corner. And it's just collecting dust sometimes. Or a car, or a house, or that vacation place, or whatever. Whatever you think is going to bring ultimate meaning to your life, it's always something, here it is, the law of diminishing return is the drive of every addiction. The feeling that what is missing is simply more of what we've set out to make us happy. And there's some of us here that know exactly what that's about today. We have been going after, you know, we have been pursuing hedonism and material and materialism is right behind it, but hedonism, the pleasure syndrome, doing everything we can to feel pleasure in our lives. And, and is the Bible saying that there's no meaning in pleasure? No, it's not saying that. There's meaning in pleasure. The problem is it's just, it's not enough. It's not ultimate. And we don't know that. We don't see that. And that's because we haven't asked the hard question. We've not listened to the critic and we bought the lie of our culture. And by the way, that's been the lie of every culture. Ultimate meaning is found in knowledge. Ultimate meaning is found in pleasure. Eh, eh. Both are wrong. Number three. Chapter two, verses four through six show us that some people believe that the true meaning of life is found in wealth and materialism. Right behind pleasure is wealth and materialism. Um, we are surrounded by unbelievable wealth. Now, while there's nothing wrong with being wealthy, let me say this again. There's nothing wrong with being wealthy. Uh, when you read the book of Ecclesiastes, it is not, nor anywhere in the Bible is it saying that it is wrong to be wealthy. But the problem is, if we put our pursuits in wealth and materialism, thinking that that's what life is really about, what we come up with is something short of the goal because no matter how much we earn or no matter how much we have, we still come up short. Peter Kreft, in his book, Three Philosophies of Life, I love this quote, he says, wealth can buy everything money can buy. Unfortunately, it cannot buy a single thing that money can't buy, <laughs> which is ultimate meaning. Wealth can buy anything money can buy. But it can't buy the one thing that money can't buy, and that is meaning in life. I sat with a, a very uh, pr professional, successful businesswoman this past week, and she was sharing with me that at every marker of her life, she started off in sort of the direct sales kind of thing, and she was a go-getter, and she made her marks, and she was kind of climbing the ladder, and she said at every single point, I found where I had set the dial that when I have this much, I will be happy. And when she got there, guess what? She wasn't happy. Oh, so I need a new benchmark. So she sets a new benchmark and she goes after that one and the next one and the next one and the next one. And now she's in the discovery process of what maybe this life is really all about. It was a fascinating conversation to her, but it was a beautiful thing to remind her as I was reminding myself that that's what this book is saying. There's nothing wrong with being wealthy. The problem is, it's just 
Not enough. You can be knowledgeable. You can have pleasure. You can have wealth and possessions, but those are not the real meaning of life. Here's another one. Chapter 2, verses 17 through 26. Some people believe that the true meaning of life is found in one's work. Oh, so if I just find the right job, the right career. Now, some of us, perhaps, if you're in one of those kind of dead-end jobs where you see that you're not going anywhere in life, uh, you don't be, need to be persuaded on this, but there's a lot of people, and this is very popular in our culture right now, that you know, the th- that more important than money is just finding a job that you're actually doing something for others. And there's nothing wrong with that. That's a beautiful twist to what used to be sort of the focus. Younger generations today are really big on this, you know, f- philanthropy and finding jobs and work that actually create good in the community. That's fantastic. That's great. But that's not the ultimate meaning. Multiply the number zero with any other number and you still get zero. And that's kind of what Solomon or the critic is saying here. He says, I, verse 17, I hated life because of the work that is done under the sun was grievous to me. How many of you have ever felt that your work is grievous to you? <laughs> Anybody? Only a couple of us? You liars. <laughs> it's a sin to lie. All of us at times feel like our work is grievous. And that's if we put so much attention that our work has to make the difference of the meaning of our lives. And the critic is saying, you can find meaning in work, and I hope you do. But if that's the ultimate meaning you're going after, you're going to be sorely disappointed. Because as great as work is, it's just not enough. And so if you're going to pour 40, 50, 60 hours, I've got buddies around me that are working 60, 70. One friend of mine this last week said, I'm hoping to get my work week down to 60 hours. That would be just a beautiful thing. (laughs) I have a feeling there's some grief in that job. And that's because, and he knows it, he's a champion of this. And that's why he devotes a lot of his time avocationally to the things he does right here in our ministry, working with beautiful things like cross streets and helping people off the streets and pouring your life into things that really matter in life. That's a beautiful thing because he knows that as great as our work can be, it's not the ultimate meaning. The ultimate meaning is far greater than that, which brings us to the fifth thing. Some people believe that apart from these four things, they have found the true meaning of life. Now, I don't want to get too You know, I thought about how do I break this down? Because through the rest of the book of Ecclesiastes, there's these categories, and I'm going to break them into two. Uh, This may include our personal relationships, because some of you have been waiting saying, oh, you know, what the real meaning of life is people. And yeah, there's meaning in people. Praise God for people. Praise God for friends. Praise God for sons and daughters, spiritual sons and daughters. Praise God for fellow members of the body of Christ, brothers and sisters in Christ. Praise God for our parents. Praise God. Praise God for people. But sometimes we think that relationships are the ultimate end. Uh, Look at uh, chapter 4. And in fact, you know, you read this out of context a lot of times. Chapter 4, verses 7 and 8, it says, Again, I saw something meaningless under the sun. There was a man all alone. He had neither son or brother. There was no end to his toil, yet his eyes were not content with his wealth. 
For whom am I toiling, he asks, and why am I depriving myself of enjoyment? This too is meaningless, a miserable business. And then, two are better than one because they have a good return for their work. If one falls down, his friend can help him up, but pity the man who falls and has no one to help him up. Also, if two lie down together, they will be kept warm. But how can one keep warm alone? Though one may be overpowered, two can defend themselves. A cord of three strands is not quickly broken. This is, this is ascribing or, or kind of pointing to the fact that, that we all need relationships. We all feel this gap in our lives. But even that, in the larger context of Ecclesiastes, is a critic's way of saying you're still going to come short. Two are better than one, but in the ultimate analysis, you're still going to come up short. If you don't have anybody, having somebody is good, but even having somebody is not the ultimate end. Relationships are great, but they're just not enough. And I know some of us might argue with that. Well, you need to read through the book of Ecclesiastes and hear the argument of the critic because people are going to let you down. People are going to hurt you and scorn you. The source of our deepest regrets Anger, jealousy, disappointments, and stress are people. I remember a friend of mine who was a pastor says, I love the ministry. It's just people I can't stand. (laughs) You know, we can relate to those kinds of things. People kind of get in the way sometimes. They're, They're God's gift, and sometimes they're God's, it feels like God's curse. And then this other category, quickly, and this is the big one. This is the biggest one. This may include religion and other spiritual practices. Now, do you hear what I'm saying here and what this book is saying? Chapter 5, 1 through 6, guard your steps when you go into the house of God. Go near to listen rather than offer the sacrifice of fools. You know what the critic is saying? So often, and I have preached this out of context at times, where the focus of this section is saying how good it is that God wants a clear heart and a, a real heart when we go into His presence. Absolutely, that's true. You can preach that from this text. But the critic is showing the reader that the problem among most people is a veneered religion a shallow religion that offers more words than substance, and somehow that shallow, veneered religion becomes the full purpose of a person's life. In other words, we dive ourselves into the God of our choosing, the God of self-help, the God of self-realization, the God of philanthropy, the God of generosity, the God of healing the ailments of the world, the God whatever, the good things that we aspire to that we think will make ultimate difference in our lives and the biggest category that not only holds people from the real meaning of life but even traps them from seeing the real meaning of life is a religious experience apart from a life love lived affair with the living God. A true life, a true relationship with the one true God that calls us into experiences that sometimes are horrific and yet like Job says, though he slay me, I will 
praise Him. Whatever's in my life, I can thank God for because God is sovereign and He's in control of my life. And without a lived love affair with the living God, we are skipping along in a pseudo-religious experience. And you know what worries me as a pastor? What worries me as a pastor, and it ought to worry you too, that in a church our size, there are a lot of folks that that's good enough. You're not going to surrender your life to Jesus. You've got some sort of view. You've got some sort of view that just getting a little bit of God is enough. And you're going to push away from the table when he invites you into that war room where you have to surrender your will, where you have to give up your dream, where you have to die to yourself, and where you have to accept what he alone can give to you, which is the ultimate meaning of life. Hmm. Which brings us to the last thing. Go to chapter 12. In chapter 12, the meaning of life, when understood, is the key to obtaining wisdom. Verse 13. Now all has been heard. Here is the conclusion of the matter. Fear God and keep His commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. It ends up right where Proverbs led us through the last part of this series. It's always and only about seeing God for who He is. Always. Always. You know, if you're outlining this book, you have the opening argument and thesis in chapter 1, verses 1 through 3. Then chapter 1, verse 4, to chapter 12, verse 12, is the expression of the argument. And then verse 13 and 14 is the conclusion of the book. <laughs> so you have this little beep, beginning, womp, boop, little thing at the end. And all of it is pointing the reader to say, this is the meaning of life. The question we must ask ourselves is, do we know the meaning of life? Now, for the next five weeks, we're going to be stirring this up big. This is just the intro. I hope you'll come back, and I hope you'll grab people that might be living in the chaos of counterfeit meaning. And it might just be that some of us will find out that we're there too. And God will break out on us. Amen?